confronted by the mystery of, of the fact that we exist and we are experiencing whatever it is that we're experiencing right now. Perhaps, very broadly speaking, there are two possible responses. The first, maybe, is to take a step back in amazement, to feel a sense of incredulity at the strangeness of it all. But it's the other one that I want to focus on today. That other response or perspective in which we may perhaps choose instead to submit, surrender willingly into the embrace of existence. And rather than seeking to look upon it, allow ourselves to be absorbed completely into it, instead of seeking to understand the truth of creation, we can decide just to let ourselves sink into the embrace of existence, its goodness and its beauty. Sexual metaphors are often used to attempt to describe our relationship to reality. The idea of God as a father is not exclusively a ploy to enshrine patriarchal power. What it seeks to express is that dimension of the relationship of the divine to its creation which is curiously, paradoxically, indirect. We don't find any trace of God inside the universe. If we did, that would mean he was created rather than the creator. And so God has this mysteriously indirect relationship to his creation. The analogy is used of the role of a father in the birth of a child. In comparison to the role of the mother in the child's birth, the father's role is somewhat indirect, somewhat abstract. A father is removed from the act of birth to an extent that it is possible for a father to be dead at the time of the birth of his child. And whereas a mother's knowledge that a child is hers is implicit because she has given birth to that child, in comparison, the father's knowledge of his paternity is often to some degree inferred cannot know the way the mother knows that the child is his. 
applying the analogy of the mother back into our relationship to reality, we gain a sense of how the relationship of the goddess to creation is completely different. It's direct, it's intimate, she holds everything at all times in her loving embrace. In the analogy of God as Father, there are dimensions of indirectness, of death, of abstraction. But there is none of this in the analogy of God as Mother. And yet the relationship to reality, to divinity, that this opens up is just as deep, just as true. In the realm of the goddess, we are confronted with the overwhelming reality of being, of life, in all its abundance and multiplicity. And also the ineluctable fact of our deep, deep implication in all of this. The goddess holds us lovingly but firmly in her embrace. And maybe there are senses in which she never ever lets us go. In the tarot, the empress is this archetypal figure of she who holds the material world within her power because she wields the means of manifestation in the world. In the Marseille deck, the earliest tarot deck that we have, She's shown seated on a throne. The back of the throne rising up behind her in a way that looks like possibly two angels' wings. She wears a crown and in her left hand is a scepter. And her right hand is wrapped around a shield upon which is depicted an eagle. For the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot, the Empress is a figure associated with magic, surprisingly perhaps. Not just any kind of magic, however, but instead what Anonymous describes as sacred or divine magic. As he describes it, the putting into practice of mystical revelation. For Anonymous, the Empress, is she who, to a supreme degree, is capable of manifesting the divine will in the material world. That's what her sacred magic amounts to. However, 
maybe it's worth our while to reflect on what the difference is precisely, if there can be said to be any substantial difference between a woman capable of bringing perfectly into material manifestation the divine will and a goddess for whom the divine will that she expresses is her own. This dimension of the empress as a goddess in her own right is what has tended to find depiction in more recent tarot decks, most notably perhaps in the early 20th century Rider Waite deck, where she's shown seated in a garden upon a very plush looking chair. The scepter has migrated from her left hand to her right. The crown on her head is now composed of twelve stars, which recalls, perhaps, the figure from chapter twelve of the book of Revelation, the woman clothed with the sun, as she's known. In this depiction, she's no longer holding a shield. Although something that looks like a shield is now presented seemingly as part of the chair that she's sitting on. This shield, if that's what it is, now appears in the shape of a heart. And engraved within the heart the astrological sign for Venus. In these more recent depictions of the Empress, very much more a sense of a woman who is herself divine. The garden, the stars on her crown, a network of associations pointing to Goddesses, figures such as Ceres, Aphrodite, Venus. In her depiction in the Marseille deck, we have very much, I think, a female figure of authority. But often in those depictions of the Empress as a goddess figure, her power seems more enigmatic. Often she's wearing a faint and mysterious smile, as if her supreme sense of self-assurance is coming from somewhere deep within, rather than simply from a mantle of authority. Very often, the Empress is depicted as being pregnant. And this too points at the nature of her power, at the particular kind of relationship to the Divine that she 
represents and enjoys awakening to reality in the way that the Empress suggests is as the spiritual teacher Amoda Ma describes it to say a full yes to be uncompromising in that yes it's a yes from the quietest part of your innermost being which requires a surrender it's the yes of the birthing process and the birthing process requires a willingness she goes on to say it's not an imposing of the personal will on anything it's a willingness to allow that organic process to take place but that willingness is also a sacrifice just like a mother that is able to rest in the yes that roots her in the power of giving birth to something new out of the invisible realm born in the manifest realm the archetype of the empress makes her influence felt in our lives whenever we find ourselves fortunate enough to be confronted with abundance, with goodness, with the bounty that the material world can offer us. Whenever there's an opportunity to throw ourselves wholeheartedly and joyfully into whatever it is the material world presents us with, then we fall under the influence of this archetype. And although it might seem strange to say it, all archetypes, as well as offering us facets of human experience they also present us with challenges and having our material needs completely met and exceeded even this too in the context of being human is a challenge the dilemma of entering into abundance, plenty, is the danger of falling into an attitude that leads us to squander whatever we've had the good fortune to receive. The dynamics of squandering are perhaps explored in a passage from William Shakespeare's long narrative poem, Venus and Adonis. Shakespeare twists the original myth a little in his retelling, offering a take on the relationship between the goddess of love, Venus, and Adonis, the most beautiful and attractive of all mortal men, 
that's at the same time highly erotically charged, but also quite comic. Venus appears in the poem like a kind of giantess who's constantly sweeping Adonis up in her arms or pinning him down in her attempts to overcome his manifest reluctance and seduce him. Vividly in the poem, Shakespeare evokes that sense of Venus in all her bounty and sensuousness. That sense may be in which the world in its most positive light pulls us in and enfolds us in all its charms. In this passage, Venus compares herself to a park and suggests that Adonis is like a deer grazing in that park. Sometimes her arms enfold him like a band. She would, he will not in her arms be bound. And when from thence he struggles to be gone, she locks her lily fingers one in one. Fondling, she saith, since I have hemmed thee here within the circuit of this ivory pale, I'll be a park, and thou shalt be my dear. Feed where thou wilt, on mountain or in dale. Graze on my lips, and if those hills be dry, stray lower where the pleasant fountains lie. Within this limit is relief enough, sweet bottom grass and high delightful plain, round rising hillocks, breaks obscure and rough, to shelter thee from tempest and from rain. Then be my dear, since I am such a park, no dog shall rouse thee, though a thousand bark. I shall leave it to your imagination to decode the double entendres in the description of the landscape, the hillocks and the breaks. Here, of course, Venus is attempting to seduce Adonis by drawing his attention to particular parts of her body. And this, I think, points us towards the dynamics of squandering, the ever-present danger that when abundance offers itself to us, we start to become fascinated by and drawn into its parts rather than focusing on the whole. A certain degradation takes place. Squandering is a kind of falling out of love and a falling into lust. Venus is encouraging Adonis to do this in her effort to seduce him drawing his attention to the most seductive parts of her body. When we're in love, our love is for the whole of whatever or whoever 
we're in love with. But if our intention becomes focused too much on what the beloved gives us, what the beloved does for us, which are, of course, the parts, the attributes, the characteristics of the beloved, then we're falling into something that's more like lust than love. And in losing sight of the whole, we begin to squander the parts. Because of the beauty of the symbol, says Alistair Crowley in his discussion of the Empress, the student who is dazzled by any given manifestation may be led astray. In no other card is it so necessary to disregard the parts, to concentrate upon the whole. An alternative trajectory, I think, is explored in Andrew Marvell's famous poem, The Garden. In Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, the goddess compares herself to a landscape. And in Marvell's poem, there's a very similar sense of the garden, the natural world itself, like a containing cocoon or refuge. A sense of the erotic is here too, but it's a sense of the erotic that's interestingly devoid of any obvious object. What wondrous life is this I lead, writes Marvell. Ripe apples drop about my head. The luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. The nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach stumbling on melons as I pass ensnared with flowers I fall on grass meanwhile the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness the mind that ocean where each kind straight its own resemblance find, yet it creates transcending these far other worlds and other seas, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Those last two lines are wonderfully enigmatic, wonderfully ambiguous within a poem that seems very much about an encounter with the archetype of the Empress. He seems to find himself suddenly completely at ease in the very depths of nature, the natural world. Lost and wandering about this garden that seems as if it's positively foisting upon him all these fruits, apples and grapes and nectarines and peaches and melons. 
there's so much here and it's so freely being made available that it seems absurd. The mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness, he says, seemingly making the point that the happier and more contented we are, the less we're aware of the mind and its constant churning of thoughts. And with this quietening down of mental activity comes a heightened feeling of happiness. But this is where things get interesting, because rather than losing himself in a kind of blank, mindless hedonism, which might have been a squandering of all the beauty and wonder around him. Instead, he seems to follow, to trace that sensation of the lessening of the mind. The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find, is how he describes it. In other words, the mind is full of resemblances of all kinds of things. The mind is an ocean of mental representations of our experiences. But Marvell seems focused on a dimension above and beyond these mental representations. Yet it, the mind, he says, creates transcending these far other worlds and other seas. It's that transcendent place that Marvell seems to have fixed his gaze upon. Beyond the many mental representations that swarm through the mind, the parts the many, the multiplicity of things that present themselves to us. He's focused not on the things, the bits and pieces of the world that give us pleasure, but on the one thing, the whole, the mind, even as that mind becomes less and less and starts to disappear in the moment that we're enraptured by pleasure. If we stay with the mind itself rather than all the many entrancing, dazzling things that appear within it, then there comes a point perhaps where all of those disappear and the mind all of experience becomes just one infinite garden, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Bounty, beauty, abundance, plurality, Multiplicity. What the Empress offers us, presents us with, 
is the antidote to situations or perspectives we might have taken in our lives. Where, for whatever reason, we've found ourselves cut off from the joy, the pleasure, the fulfilment that the material world can offer. But when that does become realised and the Empress enters into our lives, then comes the danger of squandering that bounty, falling into lust for the parts rather than love for the whole. But the Empress herself is the model for how to work with that danger. Like her, in the midst of all our wealth and abundance, we need to allow ourselves to be made pregnant by that. That uncompromising yes to the birthing process that Amoda Ma described. When we do that, the plentifulness that we enjoy becomes not merely something that we consume and then it's gone, but a basis for something new, for further growth, an opportunity for yet more bounty to come into the world through our willingness to give birth to it.